Calvin's doctrine of the church. Now, there's more to be said about this that, I'm, that, that I have put together. In fact, this will be a, a rather short lecture, but uh, it is so important. What, what, what thrills me today is you see among Christians uh, a renewed love for the institutional church. When I was growing up, uh, people would always throw rocks at the institutional church or the organized church. We're Christians, we're religious, but we don't like the organized church. Or the organized church is uh, apostate, it's no place for Christians, etc. We'll just worship God in our homes and on and on. And so what's encouraging to me is to see among Christians a renewed love for the institutional church. And organized church. And Calvin loved that church. And so let's see what he said. But first of all, let me ask you a couple questions. With which of the following two statements do you agree? Now don't say it publicly, you may embarrass yourself. One, everyday people are straying away from the church and going back to God. Or, away from the church, one cannot hope for any forgiveness of sins or any salvation. You agree with any one of those? I'll ask you again. Which one do you like? Every day people are straying away from the church and going back to God. Or, away from the church, one cannot hope for any forgiveness of sins or any salvation. If your view resembles that of the first statement, then your ecclesiology is closer to the author of the first than the second. The first statement is by Lenny Bruce, the foul-mouthed stand-up comedian. The second statement is by John Calvin, premier reformer of the 16th century. But although we may have a high view of the church, should we go as far as Calvin went in speaking of the necessity for the church in salvation? Calvin's influence on the Westminster Confession of Faith produced by 17th century Puritanism regarding this issue is seen clearly in paragraph 25, chapter 25, paragraph 2. The visible church consists of all those throughout the world who profess the true religion and of their children and is the kingdom of the Lord Jesus Christ, the house and family of God, out of which there is no ordinary possibility of salvation. The point is that everyone who desires to be saved from sin is obligated to join the visible church, to remain with her and not to separate himself from her. As Archibald Alexander Hodge has explained, where there is the knowledge and opportunity, God requires everyone who loves Christ to confess him in the regular way of joining the community of his people and of taking the sacramental badges of his discipleship. Let's see now how Calvin develops his argument for the necessity of the institutional church that is so foreign to many evangelicals today. The amount of space on the subject of the church, almost 500 pages just in the institutes, plus many other books, booklets, sermons, and letters on the subject, shows us the central importance Calvin places on the true church of Jesus Christ. The focus of his ministerial efforts was the reformation of the 
Somebody came up to me one time, a book he was writing, and he said, Joe, would you think it's fair to say that the focus of Calvin's actions was the reformation of the family? I said, no. The focus of his ministerial efforts was the reformation of the church. As one has said of him, Calvin had a passion for the glory of God and a love for the church of Jesus Christ. For Calvin, these two always went together. All his writings breathe with this passion. Concerning his love for the church, Calvin once said, My love for the church and my anxiety about her interests carry me away into a sort of ecstasy so that I can think of nothing else. To answer the claim of the Roman Catholic Church that it is the one true church outside of which no one can be saved, Calvin explains in what sense the church is invisible and visible. As he makes this point, he never wavers from the reality that God has only one church, not two. Not an invisible church and a visible church. God is not a bigamist. He has one bride, the church, which is in one sense invisible and in another visible. Here are Calvin's own words. Holy Scripture speaks of the church in two ways. Sometimes by the term church, it means that which is actually in God's presence, into which no persons are received, but those who are children of God by grace of adoption and true members of Christ by sanctification of the Holy Spirit. Then indeed, the church includes not only the saints presently living on earth, but all the elect from the beginning of the world. Often, however, the name church designates the whole multitude of men spread over the earth who profess to worship one God and Christ. In this church are mingled many hypocrites who have nothing of Christ but the name and outward appearance. Just as we must believe, therefore, that the former church, invisible to us, is visible to the eyes of God alone, so we are commanded to revere and keep communion with the latter, which is called church in respect to men. Calvin called the church invisible when he was speaking of all those elect of God who have been or will be gathered into Christ, which number only God infallibly knows. He called the church visible when he was referring to that company of people who profess faith in Christ along with their children. But he never tired of emphasizing that God has only one true church. All of the invisible church are in the visible church. But not all who are in the visible church are of the invisible church. By this distinction, Calvin was able to show that the Roman Catholic Church was not the one true church. And at the same time to show the sanctity and importance of the visible church. This distinction can be found in 2 Timothy 2, 19 and 20. Nevertheless, the firm foundation of God stands, having this seal. The Lord knows those who are His. And let everyone who names the name of the Lord abstain from wickedness. Now in a large house, there are not only good and silver vessels, but also vessels of wood and of earthenware, and some to honor and some to dishonor, an illusion to Romans 9. Calvin impresses us with the importance and necessity of the visible church in emphasizing her role as mother, bearing and nourishing believers, therefore making the church necessary for salvation. He said, the church is the common mother of all the godly, which bears, nourishes, 
and brings up children to God, kings and peasants alike. And this is done by the ministry of the word of God. Calvin goes on to explain what he means by this figure of speech. I shall start then with the church into whose bosom God is pleased to gather his sons, not only that they may be nourished by her help and ministry as long as they are infants and children, but also that they may be guided by her motherly care until they mature and at last reach the goal of faith. So that for those to whom God is father, the church may also be mother. The visible church as mother of believers. This is still Calvin. But because it is now our intention to discuss the visible church, let us learn from the simple title mother. How useful, indeed, how necessary it is that we should know her. For there's no other way to enter into life unless this mother conceive us in her womb, give us birth, nourish us at her breast. And lastly, unless she keep us under her care and guidance until putting off mortal flesh, we become like angels. Our weakness does not allow us to be dismissed from her school until we have been pupils all our lives. Furthermore, away from her bosom, one cannot hope for any forgiveness of sins or any salvation. As Isaiah 37, 32 and Joel 2, 32 testify. Sometime look up those. Ezekiel agrees with them when he declares that those whom God rejects from heavenly life will not be enrolled among God's people. On the other hand, those who turn to the cultivation of true godliness are said to inscribe their names among the citizens of Jerusalem. Calvin uses this figure of visible church as mother to answer Rome's claim that outside the Roman Catholic Church there is no salvation for anyone and to answer some of the Libertines and Anabaptists on the other extreme who denigrate the value of the visible church. What does Calvin mean when he speaks of the necessity of the church in salvation? He has reference to the role of preaching in the church. Among other things, Ephesians 4, 11 says this, And he gave some as apostles, and some as prophets, and some as evangelists, and some as pastors and teachers, for the equipping of the saints, for the work of service, to the building up of the body of Christ, until we all attain to the unity of the faith, and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to a mature man, to the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ. For Christian families... Homeschooling of children is not enough. And state-sponsored schooling in public schools is forbidden. If Christians are to attain the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to a mature man, to the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ, they need the continual education in the Word of God through the teaching ministry of the institutional church. My wife and I were taken out to eat not long ago by this family that, that was paying for dinner. So I didn't want to offend the father and have to pay for my own. So I avoided all controversy. But he didn't want to avoid controversy. And so he pointed out that uh, only he had the right from God to teach his children. I think he was just baiting me. And I said, uh, he said, don't you believe that? I said, 
No, sir, I don't. The Great Commission was given to the church, and to the church he said, Teach them to observe all that I command you, and, all, and I'm with you to the end of the age. He said, okay. The church, I would say, has the role of helping teaching the children under the Father. Don't you believe that? I said, nope. The church is not under the Father. That not only do parents have the responsibility to teach their children, but along with, not under, along with the Father, the institutional church has the responsibility of equipping the saints for the work of service until we all attain to the unity, the faith, and the knowledge of the Son of God, to a mature man, to the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ. Here's Calvin. We see how God, who could in a moment perfect his own, nevertheless desires them to grow up into manhood solely under the education of the church. We see the way set for it. The preaching of the heavenly doctrine has been enjoined upon the pastors. We see that all are brought under the same regulation, that with a gentle and teachable spirit they may allow themselves to be governed by teachers appointed to this function. From this it follows that all those who spurn the spiritual food divinely extended to them through the hand of the church, deserve to perish in famine and hunger. God breathes faith into us only by the instrument of his gospel, as Paul points out that faith comes by hearing. Likewise, the power to save rests with God. He displays and unfolds it in the preaching of the gospel. Still Calvin. By this plan, he will devote that holy assemblies be held at the sanctuary in order that the doctrine taught by the mouth of the priest might foster agreement in faith, as he did not entrust the ancient folk to angels, but raised up teachers from the earth truly to perform the angelic office. So also it is his will to teach us through human means. As he was of old not content with the law alone, but added priests as interpreters from whose lips the people might ask its true meaning. So today, he not only desires us to be attentive to its reading, but also appoints instructors to help us by their effort. This is doubly useful. On the one hand, he proves our obedience by a very good test when we hear his minister speaking just as if he himself spoke. On the other, he also provides for our weakness in that he prefers to address us in human fashion through interpreters in order to draw us to himself rather than to thunder at us and drive us away. Still Calvin. Those who think the authority of the word is dragged down by the baseness of men called to teach is to disclose their own ungratefulness. For among the many excellent gifts with which God has adorned the human race, it is a singular privilege that he deigns to consecrate to himself the mouths and tongues of men in order that his voice may resound in them. Although God's power is not bound to outward means, he has nonetheless bound us to this ordinary manner of teaching. Fanatical men refusing to hold fast to it entangle themselves in many deadly snares. Many are led either by pride, dislike, or rivalry to the conviction that they can profit enough from private reading and meditation. Hence they despise public assemblies and deem preaching superfluous. 
but since they do their utmost to sever or break the sacred bond of unity, no one escapes the just penalty of this unholy separation without bewitching himself with pestilent errors and foulest delusions. Now, how can you identify a true church from a fake church? Particularly today, I mean, you've got churches everywhere or buildings that call themselves churches. Some are fake, some aren't. How do you tell the difference? How do you can tell a true church from a fake church? Calvin dealt with that when he went to Geneva, and he says the true church has two marks. All true churches have two marks, and you can always identify a true church from a fake church if the true church has these two marks. Calvin takes great pains in distinguishing the true church from fake churches, which is vitally important since God's church is necessary to our salvation. He explains that there are two marks by which, says Calvin, the face of the church comes forth and becomes visible to our eyes. Whenever we see the word of God purely preached and heard and the sacraments of baptism and the Lord's Supper administered according to Christ's institution, there is not to be doubted a church of God exists. If it has the ministry of the word and honors it, if it has the administration of the sacraments, it deserves without doubt to be held and considered a church. He goes on, let us therefore keep these marks imprinted upon our minds and esteem them in accordance with the Lord's will. For there is nothing that Satan plots more than to overthrow and do away with one or both of these marks. He said, as soon as falsehood breaks into the citadel of religion and the sum of necessary doctrine is overturned and the use of the sacraments is destroyed, surely the death of the church follows. Just as a man's life is ended when his throat is pierced or his heart mortally wounded. If the foundation of the church is the teaching of the prophets and the apostles, which bids believers entrust their salvation to Christ alone, then take away that teaching, and how will the building continue to stand? Therefore, the church must tumble down when the sum of religion dies, which alone can sustain it. Again, if the true church is the pillar and foundation of truth, it is certain that no church can exist where lying and falsehood have gained way. And concerning false churches that do not bear these two marks, which included for Calvin the Roman Catholic Church, he said, For it is enough for me that it behooved us to withdraw from them that we might come to Christ. Years later, the English Puritans and the Scottish Presbyterians added a third mark of a true church. The faithful practice of church discipline. This is not because they had a higher view of church discipline than Calvin, as the following quotations will show. In fact, we can be certain that Calvin would agree with the point they were making. Here's Calvin. But because some persons in their hatred of discipline recoil from its very name, let them understand this. If no society, indeed no house, which has even a small family can be kept in proper condition without discipline, it is much more necessary in the church whose condition should be as ordered as possible. Accordingly, as the saving doctrine of Christ is the soul of the church, so does discipline serve as its sinews, through which the members of the body hold together, each in its own place. Therefore, all who desire to remove discipline 
or to hinder its restoration, whether they do this deliberately or out of ignorance, are surely contributing to the ultimate dissolution of the church. For what will happen if each is allowed to do what he pleases? Yet that would happen if to the preaching of doctrine there were not added private admonitions, corrections, and other aids uh, of the sort that sustain doctrine and do not let it remain idle. Therefore, discipline is like a bridle to restrain and tame those who rage against the doctrine of Christ, or like spur to arouse those of little inclination, and also sometimes like a father's rod to chastise mildly and with the gentleness of Christ's spirit those who have more seriously lapsed. However, Calvin also warns us about excessive discipline that is harsh, too severe, not performed in love for the offender. He quotes the early church father Cyprian. Let a man mercifully correct what he can. Let him patiently bear what he cannot correct. And groan and sorrow over it with love. In this regard, he warns us against the overscrupulousness of the Donatists in Augustine's day. And of the Anabaptists in his own day. He said, while they recognize no assembly of Christ to exist except one conspicuous in every respect for its angelic perfection. Under the pretense of their zeal, they subvert whatever edification there is. Calvin then quotes Augustine's sharp rebuke of the Donatists. Such persons, not out of hatred of other men's wickedness, but out of fondness for their own contentions, ensnaring the weak folk by boasting of their own name, Strive either to draw them all to their side or at least to divide them. Puffed up in their pride, mad in their stubbornness, deceitfulness in their slanders, and turbulent in their seditions. They draw the shade of a rigid severity to hide their lack of the light of truth. Those things which scripture enjoins to be done to correct the vices of the brethren with a modest remedy. While sincere love is kept and unity of peace preserved, they seize upon and turn to the sacrilege of schism and the occasion of cutting off. Speaking of schism. Now I'm going to read some things now from Calvin. I'm not going to look around and see who's here. But some of these may pinch. In Calvin's mind, schism was a terrible sin. Now, this is all Calvin. His point is, when is it proper to leave a true church and when it's not? If you have a true church, all true churches are flawed. No true churches are perfect. If you have a true church where the gospel is preached and honored and the sacraments of the Lord's Supper and baptism and ministered faithfully, you got a true church. And you better have a good reason that will hold up on Judgment Day for leaving a true church. Here's Calvin. We have laid down as distinguishing marks of the church the preaching of the word and the observance of the sacraments. These can never exist without bringing forth fruit and prospering by God's blessing. I do not say that wherever the word is preached, there will be immediate fruit. But wherever it is received and has a fixed abode, it shows its effectiveness. However it may be, where the preaching of the gospel is reverently heard and the sacraments are not neglected, 
there for the time being no deceitful or ambiguous form of the church is seen. And no one is permitted to spurn its authority, flout its warnings, resist its counsels, or make light of its chastisements, much less to desert it and break its unity. For the Lord esteemed the communion of his church so highly that he counts as a traitor and apostate from Christianity anyone who arrogantly leaves any Christian society provided it cherishes the true ministry of the word and sacrament. He so esteems the authority of the church that when it is violated, he believes his own diminished. It is of no small importance that it is called the pillar and ground of the truth and the house of God. Calvin says, by these words, Paul's means that the church is the faithful keeper of God's truth in order that it may not perish in the world. For by its ministry and labor, God willed to have the preaching of his word kept pure and to show himself the father of a family while he feeds us with spiritual food and provides everything that makes for our salvation. From this it follows that separation from the church is the denial of God and Christ. Hence, we must even more avoid so wicked a separation. For when with all our might we are attempting the overthrow of God's truth, we deserve to have him hurl the whole thunderbolt of his wrath to crush us. Calvin says the pure ministry of the word and pure mode of celebrating the sacraments are, as we say, sufficient pledge and guarantee that we may safely embrace as church in a society, any society in which both these marks exist. The principle extends to the point that we must not reject it so long as it retains them, even if it otherwise swarms with many faults. What is more, some fault may creep into the administration of either doctrine or sacraments. But this ought not to estrange us from communion with the church. For not all the articles of true doctrine are of the same sort. Some are so necessary to know that they should be certain and unquestioned by all men as the proper principles of religion. Among the churches, there are other articles of doctrine disputed, which still do not break the unity of faith. First and foremost, we should agree on all points. But since all men are somewhat beclouded with ignorance, either we must leave no church remaining, or we must condone delusion in those matters which can go unknown without harm to the sum of religion and without loss of salvation. But here I would not support even the slightest errors with the thought of fostering them through flattery and connivance. But I say we must not thoughtlessly forsake the church because of any petty dissensions. We are neither to renounce the communion of the church nor remaining in it to disturb its peace and duly ordered discipline. There are others who sin out of ill-advised zeal for righteousness than out of that insane pride. When they do not see a quality of life corresponding to the doctrine of the gospel among those to whom it is announced, they immediately judge that no church exists in that place. This is a very legitimate complaint. And we give all too much occasion for it in the most miserable age, this most miserable age. 
and our cursed sloth is not to be excused. For the Lord will not allow it to go unpunished, seeing that he has already begun to chastise her with heavenly stripes. Woe to us then, who act with such dissolute and criminal license that weak consciences are wounded because of us. But on their part, those of whom we have spoken sin, in that they do not know how to restrain their disfavor. For where the Lord requires kindness, they neglect it and give themselves over completely to immoderate severity. Indeed, because they think no church exists where there are not perfect purity and integrity of life, they depart out of hatred of wickedness from the lawful church while they fancy themselves turning aside from the faction of the wicked. Calvin says, I confess it is a great disgrace if pigs and dogs have a place among the children of God. And a still greater disgrace if the sacred body of Christ be prostituted to them. And indeed, if churches are well ordered, they will not bear the wicked in their bosom. Nor will they indiscriminately admit worthy and unworthy together to that sacred banquet. But because pastors are not always zealously on the watch and are also sometimes more lenient than they should be or are hindered from being able to exercise the severity they would like, the result is that even the openly wicked are not always removed from the company of the saints. This I admit to be a fault and I do not intend to excuse it. But even if the church be slack in its duty, Still, each and every individual has not the right at once to take upon himself the decision to separate. Indeed, I do not deny that it is the godly man's duty to abstain from all familiarity with the wicked and not to enmesh himself with them in any voluntary relationship. But it's one thing to flee the boon companionship of the wicked, another in hating them to renounce the communion of the church. But in thinking it a sacrilege to partake of the Lord's bread with the wicked, they are much more rigid than Paul. For when Paul urges us to a holy and pure partaking of it, the Lord's Supper, he does not require that one examine another or everyone examine the whole church, but that each individual prove himself. If it were unlawful to partake of communion with an unworthy person, surely Paul would bid us investigate whether there is anyone in the multitude whose uncleanliness pollutes us. But when he requires each one to prove himself alone, he shows that we are not at all harmed if anyone unworthy foists himself upon us. What follows agrees with this. He who eats unworthily eats and drinks judgment upon himself. Paul does not say upon others, but upon himself. Let the following two points then stand firm. First, he who voluntarily deserts the outward communion of the church where the word of God is preached and the sacraments administered is without excuse. Secondly, neither the vices of the few nor the vices of the many in any way prevent us from duly professing our faith that in ceremonies ordained by God.
For a godly conscience is not wounded by the unworthiness of another, whether pastor or layman. Nor are the sacraments less pure and salutary for a holy and upright man. Because they are handled by unclean persons. 350. The author, here's all the subjects that, that Calvin talked about we don't have time to deal with. The authority of the keys of the kingdom. Matthew 16, 18 through 20. Jesus said, and I also say to you that you're Peter. And upon this rock I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not overpower it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. And whatever you shall bind on earth shall have been bound on heaven. And whatever you shall loose on earth shall have been loosed in heaven. Jesus' comments about giving his church the keys of the kingdom mean that Jesus is giving his church self-governing authority, independent of any other authority. That's why our church is neither a 501c3 nor a, an incorporated entity. A corporation is a creature of the state. And we don't need the permission of the state to be Christ has given his church self-governing authority. It has the prerogative to determine its theology, ethics, worldview, government, worship, discipline, and its own membership. As the Westminster Confession of Faith states, the Lord Jesus, as king and head of the church, has therein appointed a government in the hand of church officers, distinct from the civil magistrate. To these officers, the keys of the kingdom of heaven are committed. By virtue whereof they have power respectively to retain and remit sins, to shut that kingdom against the impenitent, both by the word and censures or church discipline, and to open it unto penitent sinners by the ministry of the gospel and by absolution from censures as occasion shall require. Of course, the authority of the church is not without boundaries. The standard defining the nature and extent of church authority is the entire word of God written, sola scriptura. Not the laws of the state, the civil constitution of a nation, nor the will of the members of, or officers. Let me make a statement and tell me whether you think this is fanatical and radical or not. You ready? This is just old time Calvinism. The United States Constitution has absolutely no authority in this organized church. Okay, let's go on. In Christ's church, only his word is law. He and he alone, as the head and king of his church, purchased with his own blood, is the source of the church's authority and jurisdiction, according to Calvin. According to some political theories of influence in the United States, the authority of the church government and civil government is derived from the voluntary consent and appointment of the people who surrender a measure of their own authority by social compact to those selected to govern. We're told the political power originates with the people, the true sovereigns of the land, and that a nation should be a nation of the people, by the people, and for the people. I love what Margaret Thatcher said. She was one of my heroes. She was addressing the General Assembly of the Church of Scotland. She said, our American friends like to quote Mr. Lincoln that their nation is a government of the people, by the people, and for the people. But she said, I would have thought, in the Queen's English, not in Hillbilly, West Virginia, 
But she said, I would have thought that with a group of Christians together, its purpose would be to ascertain the revealed will of God found in Holy Scripture. So much for Lincoln. However, as far as the Bible is concerned, this is not true of either church or state. The powers that be are ordained by God and therefore are accountable to him and should recognize him as the source of their authority. The authority of the church comes directly from God, being exercised and enforced not only or chiefly because of the permission or consent of its members, but because it is a positive divine institution apart altogether from that consent. In other words, the source of church power is not in the members, but in Christ. Christ has given his church self-governing authority, but that authority is exercised by the elders called by Christ, elected by the congregation, and ordained by presbytery. Their authority is threefold. First, it is an authority in matters of doctrine. As the pillar, guardian, and custodian of the revealed truth of God, the church is to be a witness, interpreter, and defender of biblical truth to the consciences, minds, hearts, and lives of people, both inside and outside the church. The church has the responsibility as the witness to the truth to confess the truth of the word of God to the world. That duty has been discharged through the centuries by the framing of summaries of the truth in confessions of faith and catechisms. These creeds, confessions, and catechisms do not displace the Bible, nor are they on par with the Bible. They are subordinate to the Word of God as helpful aids in understanding and obeying our only rule of faith and practice, the Bible. They have a place in the life of the church only if they represent biblical Christianity in its purest human expression. As such, they can serve as a basis of fellowship, a test of orthodoxy, and a method of education, as well as means of confessing our faith clearly and unequivocally before the watching world. Second, it is an authority in matters of worship. According to Calvin, Christ has given his church the authority to put into effect the institutions, ordinances, and laws appointed in the church's worship services. In the area of worship, the church has no discretionary power. It must obey and implement those ordinances for worship commanded by Jesus Christ in the Bible and those alone. Third, it is an authority in matters of discipline. The church, through her officers, has the authority to apply church discipline, to admit into and to exclude from the fellowship of the church, and to govern the conduct of members while they continue members. Church discipline, says the Confession of Faith, is necessary for the reclaiming and gaining of offending brethren, for deterring of others from the like offenses, for purging out of that leaven which might infect the whole lump, for vindicating the honor of Christ and the holy profession of the gospel, and for preventing the wrath of God which might justly fall upon the church if they should suffer his covenant and the seals thereof to be profaned by notorious and obstinate offenders. Calvin emphasizes the great difference between civil authority and ecclesiastical authority. Here's his words. For the church does not have the right of the sword to punish or compel, nor the authority to force, not imprisonment, 
nor the other punishments which the magistrate commonly inflicts. Then it is not a question of punishing the sinner against his will, but of the sinner professing his repentance in a voluntary chastisement. The two conceptions are very different. The church does not assume what is proper to the magistrate, nor can the magistrate execute what is carried out by the church. The church today owes John Calvin for any liberty we have from the tyranny of the state over the church because of his view of the relation of church and state. Both church and state are of divine origin. And although they are different institutions with different officers, functions, and jurisdictions, both are under the same divine king and accountable to the same biblical revelation. The state is a ministry of justice, obeying and enforcing God's laws in the protection of the church and the punishment of lawbreakers. The church is a ministry of grace, obeying and enforcing God's law in the preaching and teaching of the gospel of Christ. God has given the state the power of the sword to enforce Christ's supremacy in civil matters, and he's given the church the power of the keys of the kingdom to enforce Christ's supremacy in spiritual and moral matters. The risen and reigning Lord Jesus Christ is the head of the church and the king of the state. He is the ruler of the kings of the earth. The state is, and remember Calvin made a big deal of this, the state is as accountable to his law word as is the church. Bannerman said, in the hands of Christ and under his control, the civil government of nations may be made instrumental in advancing the interests and promoting the well-being of the church. The state is to protect the church, not only from those who would injure her, but also from those who would hinder her from her world mission of preaching the gospel to every creature. The civil government must guard the full and free and unrestricted power of Christianity to take possession of this world in the name of Christ to the exclusion of any other form of faith and worship, said Bannerman. The church has a prophetic responsibility toward the state. When the state strays from the law of God, the church is to call it to repentance and to show it the right way or else receive God's judgment. This is the way Elijah, Isaiah, Jeremiah, John the Baptist, Jesus, the apostles, John, Paul, and Peter confronted the state. Martin Luther, in describing the church's ministry to the state, said that the church is to lick the fur of the state. As a cat uses its tongue to keep itself clean, so the church is to use her tongue in the preaching of the word of God to keep the state clean. That is, obedient to biblical law and the supremacy of Jesus Christ. One time, I was in South Africa speaking of this small city called Standerton, where there had been a lot of terroristic activity among the farmers. And this uh, meeting that I was addressing was church officials, municipal officials, soldiers, educational officials, farmers. And I was making this point, what's the relationship of the church to the state, particularly the South African state, and all the terroristic activities going on? And I said, as Martin Luther said, the role of the church is to lick the fur of the state. Not to lick the feet of the state, but with its rough tongue, a calf, 
a, a cat is always licking itself. I mean, you look at a dog, you hit it and flies and dust and everything comes off. But a cat is clean and shiny and slick because of its rough tongue always grooming itself. And one of the farmers, <laughs> I mean, he looked the part. He had a khaki hat with an edible skin around it. He had a khaki shirt, khaki shorts, khaki socks. I mean, he looked the part. And uh, he had a thick Afrikaans accent. And during the question and answer time, he raised his head and he said, Mr. Moorcroft, how rough may we lick the fur of the state? John Calvin, in his prefatory address to King Francis of France, in his Institutes of the Christian Religion, said to the king, It will then be for you, most serene king, not to close your ears or your mind to such just defense, especially when a very great question is at stake. How God's glory may be kept safe on earth. How God's truth may retain its place of honor. How Christ's kingdom may be kept in good repair among us. Worthy indeed is this matter of your hearing. Worthy of your cognizance, worthy of your royal throne. Indeed, this consideration makes a true king. To recognize himself a minister of God in governing his kingdom. Now that king who in ruling over his realm does not serve God's glory. Exercise not kingly rule, but brigandage. Furthermore, he is deceived, who looks for enduring prosperity in his kingdom when it is not ruled by God's scepter, that is, his holy word. 